Hello and welcome to the Good Future Podcast. And this week is the final episode in this series of conversations that explores impact investing in listed equities. Impact investing has a long history in private markets, but when it comes to investing in public companies that are listed on a stock exchange, it's a lot harder to measure your impact and to influence the companies you're investing in. And someone who has plenty to say on this topic is Seb Below. Seb was an early guest on the show, and he's back to tell us more about his fund, which is called the Web Sustainable Impact Fund. He's head of research at Web Asset Management, and he's a deep thinker about companies and their impact on the world. And we go beyond talking about metrics and frameworks to explore the nature of the companies that are leaders in the space. And when it comes to the prickly issue of additionality, the discussion went deep. Seb has some very clear views on this issue, but I'm sure you want to hear it from Seb. First, I'd like to introduce you to the sponsor of this series, and that's the ACCR, the Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility. The ACCR engages with companies as a shareholder, advocating them to improve their environmental and social practices, and in the process, make their company more sustainable. It's no easy feat, but through a modest holding of shares and with the help of a high-performing team, they put forward shareholder resolutions that focus on positive social and environmental outcomes. They're a group of pragmatic lawyers and finance experts, and by utilising shareholder resolutions, they approach some of Australia's biggest companies in a forum they can't ignore. Now, to put a resolution forward, at least 100 shareholders in a company must come together. So if you hold shares in ASX-listed companies and want to be involved in holding them to account on their environmental and social impacts, then let ACCR know about it. Head to accr.org.au slash shareholders to get involved. They're independent, not-for-profit, and they're taking action for more sustainable businesses in Australia. I hope you get as much out of this discussion as I did. We dig deep into Seb's investment approach. And so I do need to emphasize that as always, nothing in this podcast is financial advice please do seek your own professional advice before making investment decisions. And if you feel inclined, please do leave a review of this show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's super simple. You can leave a comment right there in the app. I would appreciate it. All right, let's get going. Here's my conversation with Seb below. Here we go. Seb Below, great to have you back on the show. This is round two for you on the Good Future podcast. In the previous episode, we did have the opportunity to dig into your background. We learned about your farm just outside London. And of course, we dug into your approach to impact investing. So thanks for coming back. Good to be here. Thank you. Good stuff. Well, look, today the focus is on the fund. I want to help my audience understand what's unique about about how you manage web and and the impact it has and i should explain that while you and the fund are based in the uk local distribution is managed by pengana so with all that said let's dive in i'll start with a few easy questions first up what's the coverage is it global it is yes yeah developed markets yeah easy and how many stocks what's the ballpark there we say between 40 and 60 we've got um 45 in the portfolio at the moment. Very good, very good. And can we ask how much is in there in terms of funds under management? We have a single 
strategy, but it's got a number of different vehicles, different funds. So the one that you mentioned, Pangana in Australia, but also one in the UK and into the EU as well. In total, I think it's about 1.5 billion in sterling. Very good. Very good. Healthy. That's great. And how's growth been in the last 12 months? Is there, has there been a period when there's been a spike recently? Yes, there has. Yeah, I know. It's been a roller coaster. Is it a roller coaster? It's been up, basically. <laughs> Probably this time last year, we were at about 500 million, maybe, five, 600 million. And now we're obviously 1.5 billion. So, yeah, we've seen a very rapid increase in the assets in the strategy over the last 12 months. Very good. Very good. And then, What's the key outcome that you're targeting? Is there an overriding impact theme that you're trying to achieve? Well, we have nine nine different themes, so it's a bit difficult to just target one. I mean, we say that our strategy is focused on investing in companies that provide solutions to sustainability challenges, but that's kind of quite a broad kind of waterfront. But we invest in companies that are, I guess, you know, in the environmental themes, delivering positive outcomes, typically in terms of carbon reduction, whether that's through renewable energy or energy efficiency. Of resource efficiency, but we do have other areas like water management, which connects with carbon, but but not quite so directly, and also pollution control as well, which might be other things other than carbon. But there are other environmental issues other than climate change, of course. On the social side, our biggest theme is health, so delivering you know positive outcomes for for people's health. We have a well-being theme as well, which kind of connects with health too and safety. So it's about the sort of health and safety of individuals really on the, on the social side. And education is the other one. That's right. And I think this idea of sustainability solutions is distinct in that you really focus on the output of the companies, right? It's as much about the way they operate as sort of the product and the service they're offering. Can you tell us a bit about that? For us, the, the focus is on the enterprise impact. So the impact that's being delivered by the company uh, we do also talk about our contribution, the investor contribution, which perhaps we can come back to. But the crosshairs, if you like, are very much on is the product or service being delivered by the company delivering a positive outcome for customers and wider beneficiaries. So it is very focused on that positive impact that's associated with the business. We do also think about all the other issues, but that's that's the kind of magnetic north for us. Is the product delivering a positive impact? Yeah. And then in terms of looking at the companies, do you also, I don't know, have parallel to that sort of an ESG overlay of looking at, you know, environmental, social and governance, or is that implied? Do you do you find yourself, you know, using both those terms as separate entities? We do. We do. I mean, for us, the impact is really around the service and then ESG is more the operational piece. So, you know, if you're investing in a company, like a business called TPI Composites. I was on a conference call with them yesterday. Their main business is making wind turbine blades. The product clearly is delivering a positive impact with renewable energy. The way they make it is got lots of issues associated with it. It uses a lot of energy. They have health and safety issues associated with the epoxy resins that they're using. So we look at all of that as well under the kind of banner of ESG. And for us, that's part of the quality of the business. So we don't actually have separate ESG ratings in our process. We just have a fundamental quality rating that we apply to a business. And that includes the way that it manages those ESG issues as part of that quality uh, assessment that we do. And of course, a big part of what distinguishes an impact approach is your ability to influence these companies to make positive change. And so what's your 
tactics for engagement to influence these companies and sort of try and push them and perhaps nudge them in a certain direction? We're launching our, a white paper on what we think it means to be an impact investor in listed equities, which is coming out in, on the 14th of October. And we talked about enterprise impact, which we think is important, and the intentionality of the investor in that sense, which we can come back to, um, and also the investor contribution. And, and the investor contribution happens in a number of ways. It happens through engagement with the companies themselves. And that's a big part of our focus. And it's an explicit part of what we're seeking to do with our with our investment is to encourage companies to develop and apply more progressive approaches to impact and to ESG. So we engage with about three quarters of the portfolio on these issues every year. Big focus on net zero carbon at the moment, but also gender and then specific issues that are associated with each of the different businesses that we invest in. And we disclose a lot of information about how successful or otherwise we've been and how that's changed over time. But it's not just at the level of individual companies. We do think investors have an opportunity and, in, and a responsibility to engage more broadly than just with companies. We think investors should be engaging with regulators to encourage them to develop more progressive approaches and with clients as well to educate clients around what impact means with standard setters. You know, to, to try to shift the whole financial ecosystem and accelerate this transition to a zero carbon and more sustainable economy. And there's all sorts of ways you can do that beyond just engaging with the companies. That's right. And you've been doing that for a long time. I'm sure you're well aware of, you know, the challenges of, you know, the very tangible, you know, issues of having these conversations and how you interact. Do you think that your ability to influence a company is a function of the size of your holdings? Do you ever find that that's a barrier or is it simply... You know, the companies are open to hearing about your views and, and helping them. I mean, I think it probably is an element of the dynamic that you have with a company. If you're a very large investor, you'll get quicker access to the senior leadership than if you're a small investor. But honestly, I think that if you're framing these issues in a way that makes it clear that addressing them is in the company's own self-interest and you are you know, able to make a compelling case for action on an issue, then I don't think it matters how big you are. I, you know, I think often companies look at us as an investor who can help them see where the market is going. We certainly seek to be leaders, pushing ourselves to be more ambitious in the change that we're seeking. And um, I think that is distinctive from many of the large asset managers who may have the size, but are less ambitious and less focused on change than we are. So, so I think uh, what we don't have in size, although we we're now a reasonable size, we make up for in, in the way that we can frame issues and position ourselves and our voice with companies. That's right. I mean, in, in attempting to be compelling to these companies, I mean, you could spend a lot of time doing that, right? And, and, and you need to do it at scale and you're trying to run your own business. How have you found that process? I mean, has that been a key challenge that you've had to overcome to be able to build the business and, and it's part of your success? Or are there any case studies of, of engagement that you know, might not have started out all that well, but you found a, a tactic that allowed you to really crack through and, and have that influence? I don't know whether there's a sort of magic bullet with it. Some of the examples of positive engagement where we've had success, maybe not initially, but over time have involved where we have collaborated with with other investors to put forward a message where we've not been able to get through on our own. There was a series of relatively easy wins, I could think you could say, around disclosure and reporting where you know businesses 
hadn't produced sustainability reports, weren't publicly committing to targets, that kind of thing. And that was a relatively easy win, I think, to get companies, it didn't feel like at the time, but um, getting companies to produce a sustainability report was just the first step. And by and large, they pretty much all are now. Now we are asking for real change. I mean, we're in, a, in, in an engagement with a company called Daikin, which is a large Japanese manufacturer of air conditioning equipment, efficient air conditioning equipment. And they've come out with their net zero carbon target, and we don't think it's good enough for a number of reasons. And so we are now engaging with them and, and using all the levers, pulling all the levers that we can think of, but also working with other investors through the CA100 Plus network, trying to exert pressure everywhere we can, because what we're asking for is extremely demanding. They won't change their position likely. So the heavy lifting is definitely started. And uh, it's going to be a long old haul, I think, with some of these companies. Tied to that, of course, is access, gaining access to company data, what they make available, what you have to find yourselves, bringing that all together. What's your practice in terms of tying all that together and and where is this evolving and is there a space you hope to get to in the near future with data that's sort of combined and, and, and unitized? Yeah, I mean, the, the data issue has always been a problem and, and does continue to be a problem. I mean, on carbon, it's it's better. You know, companies now are typically reporting scope one and two emissions and um, increasingly scope three emissions. We also look for information on, on what some people are calling scope four emissions, the avoided carbon associated with products and services that have a positive impact. And pulling that all together at a company level, you, you get a slightly spotty picture still. I mean, going back to, to Daikin, you know, one of the problems that we think they have in their strategy is that for their net zero carbon ambition, they talk about essentially using the carbon avoided associated with their products. So their products are typically 30% more efficient than equivalent products on the market. So they will then use that avoided carbon associated with the use of their products rather than somebody else's and use that to offset their own scope one and scope two emissions, which is pretty much explicitly not considered to be legitimate in carbon accounting. But there's still a sort of fuzziness around what you can and can't do and how you calculate net zero carbon and, and you know what does it actually mean. So there is a bit of a, of a fog still to fight through and to establish those, those clearer standards that everyone will be held to. But at least we've got the numbers and we can make the points. You know, it feels like we've come a long way in order to, re- to have that conversation with the business. Whereas a few years ago, we wouldn't really even been able to have the tools to, to have that kind of conversation. So I, so I do think it's progress. But we've got a long way to go and we don't have much time. Yeah, that's it. Progress, but a long way to go. And of course, this foundational idea of additionality. It's you know probably the key challenge in secondary markets to understand whether the impact of a company would still happen were it not for your investment, right? So how do you view the theory behind this and, and, and measuring the additional impact of, of your capital allocation? We really don't think that the concept of additionality is really helpful, actually. The problem with additionality is it is such a high standard to apply in any kind of market, frankly, to say that you are the only investor who could make this happen is an exceedingly difficult standard to hit. And frankly, one I struggle to imagine that it ever happens outside of philanthropy. Because if you're saying you're going to deliver a market rate of return, then by definition, there are going to be many people who will be interested in that. So I think that level of additionality 
a very strict level of additionality is not a pragmatic one. And the CEO of the gin has said the same. He thinks it's not a helpful standard to be applying in markets, let alone listed markets. Where, where we think there is a case is where you have primary capital, where you're you know, raising new money for a business. You may not be able to claim that you're the only one who's doing it, and you probably aren't the only one if you're participating in a fundraising round. There'll be other investors alongside you. But that primary capital has a positive impact, but that's true also in, in listed markets. So I think that distinction between private and listed isn't particularly helpful. Uh, the distinction between primary and secondary can be. We think in a way that actually the impact that we deliver is not really about additionality. It's about what can you as an investor bring to the table through the engagement you do with the business directly and then also with the wider system in terms of regulators and standard setters and clients and peers as well. The degree to which you're signaling to them that a particular investment is, is linked with positive impact. And in the same way that when an investor divests of a business because they don't like what it's doing, really that only has currency when they tell people. The same is true on the positive side as well. It's all very well investing in, a, in an exciting new business because it has a positive impact. But the important thing is that you then signal that to the rest of the market and hopefully make that investment more attractive to others as a consequence. Anyway, I hope that makes it clear how we think about additionality and why we don't really think it's a terribly helpful concept to apply in, in any kind of investment, let alone listed equities. Well, isn't it simply a distinction between private market investing and listed equities, right? Because in the private markets, you know, the, the nature of, of private equity investing as an example is that your value is that you see things that others don't. And often you are the first investor in there. And perhaps it is an academic definitional approach, but there are surely examples of, of private market investments where certain projects couldn't get off the ground and that it was a a certain investor that identified that as an opportunity and they went in and you know exploited it and the company benefited and they benefited in their positive returns i mean certainly this was the you know the core sort of concept that i grappled with early on in in my impact investment journey and it was that private equity example that sort of got me over the line and certainly i was like well if there's market rate returns you know investors are pragmatic right they'd be all over it you know, I really value your opinion there because it's essentially what I was hoping to get out of these conversations with listed equity impact investors is how you see that. So I think your perspective is really valuable because it's basically saying influence, right? What influence can I have as an investor and what can I bring to the table? And I think you've made it really clear there. Would it be helpful if listed funds didn't call themselves impact investments? Do you think that is part of the you know, the reason that we, we keep have, having to have these conversations. Yeah, so there's a, a few things to respond to there. I mean, I guess the point you make about bringing new capital to an enterprise in private markets, if you are literally the only investor who's willing to do that, that says something about the inefficiency with which that transaction has been marketed. I mean, there are people out there whose job it is to raise money for new businesses, corporate financiers. If you only have one party participating in that, then they've done a pretty terrible job you know, the worst thing you want is just one investor because then they dictate the price. You want two so that you can bid up the price and raise more money for the, for the enterprise. So if you're the only investor who's participating in supporting a new enterprise, it's more a comment on the inefficiency of the market rather than anything particularly special about that investor. And so I just, I don't think it's a very helpful way of thinking about it. And of course, this happens in listed markets as well. You, you know, you raise primary capital for new businesses at IPO. So 
you also have quite a lot of trading of secondary shares in unlisted markets as well. Private equity firms buy and sell shares between themselves in private markets. So, so that unlisted listed distinction doesn't really exist, honestly. And at that point, you also have to question whether that, I mean, as I said, primary versus secondary capital, there is a distinction there, which is helpful, but it's not the only way that investors can have an impact in the way that we've described through engagement and other ways as well. So if you can sign impact investing to a, a niche within private equity, then ultimately, really, it's never going to it's never going to have any impact. Now, these issues are so huge, you need to be able to engage the full force of capital markets to address them. These are massive global problems, and you need large equity markets and large companies involved in solving them. And if you make impact this little niche where you have to demonstrate additionality and provide counterfactual evidence of what would have happened had it not been for your investment, that's never going to be a material part of financial markets. So I don't think we should consign impact in that way because it is distinct from other types of investment strategy where you have intention and you have to demonstrate your contribution. That's different from thematic investing, which doesn't require any investor contribution. I think it's a useful distinction to apply across all financial markets, not just in private equity. If we're seeking scale, we want impact investment to grow. As you say, you need scale so that you can have impact. If it's niche, it won't have impact. But at the other end of that spectrum, you then have sort of impact washing and you don't want to lower the standards too much. And so in between there, there's a delta, right? And, and I guess that's sort of the, the lines that we're, we're talking about. How do you feel that lower bound of, of ensuring that the standards are kept high? You know, I always felt that additionality was that key standard setter. What do you think is that, I mean, does it come back to what we were talking about earlier of the new European disclosure rules? What are the key elements there? I totally agree that there's a, a challenge here that we're trying to f- carve out this middle ground, a pragmatic standard that allows larger pools of capital to, to come into the space, but a strict standard that means that it, it can't be diluted and we don't lose the potency of the language and the practice. The two pieces that provide the foundation for that are, one, this idea of intentionality. The investor, when he or she is making that investment, they intend to have a positive impact, both through the enterprise impact that they're investing in, but also through their own contribution. And that needs to be explicit as part of the investment decision. And then documenting the contribution. So how do you, how as an investor, are you going to deliver up on that intention? We're seeing interesting disclosure practices from investors and web do a lot of reporting of the kind of impact that we think we're having through various tools that we have and others as well on on the market. That's where I think you have to be strict in terms of every investment in an impact fund needs to be able to demonstrate that it was that the intention was to have a positive impact. And then you have to document how the investor has contributed to that positive impact. That for me is the bright line that you require. And just to give you an example, I was on a conference earlier this week, and I'm tempted to name the organization, but maybe I won't. But there's a very large US asset manager that has a new climate solutions fund. And the top holding in this fund was Alphabet. It sounded great in terms of every company they invest in is delivering a positive impact. And it's all about intentionality and positive impact and so on. And then you see that Alphabet is the largest holding. It's like, well, how is that having a positive impact on climate? And the argument she gave was that cloud services are a more efficient backbone to the internet than having your servers in a cupboard somewhere in your office. 
Google and Alphabet are driven by advertising revenue, not by efficiency in the cloud. That was the evidence that they're not an impact investor because they couldn't show that the intention in making the investment was to have a positive impact. So I think it, it can be done, and we should, we should have that as the standard, that strict standard around intentionality and contribution. And so going from an example like that of Google, of Alphabet, down to you know, a company anywhere in the world that is having a really positive impact, something that you've identified intentionality. Are there any my listeners might not have heard of that you'd like to talk about? It's very exciting at the moment, and I assume this is the same in Australia. I haven't been down there for some time, but in this country and certainly across Europe and increasingly in other markets as well, um, electric vehicles have really, really taken off. I was going to say exploded. That probably wouldn't be the right verb to use, but there really has been a, an extraordinary acceleration in electric vehicles. And, and we invest in, in two businesses that provide important components into EVs. One is a German business called Infineon that make power semiconductors. They, they go into renewable energy, wind turbines as well, but a big market for them is electric vehicles. The other is Aptiv, which do other components around the charging system and also around advanced safety systems as well. So both of those businesses are directly connected with the growth in battery electric vehicles, which we see as a really important part of the zero carbon transition. And we've been working with them as well in terms of the investor contribution to get them to develop and apply net zero carbon targets for their own business to improve on reporting of other aspects of their operations as well building more resilient systems to climate change as well. Some of these facilities are in areas which are water stressed. Um, and so we, we're keen to see them minimize the amount of uh, impact that they're having on their local communities as well. So again, that enterprise impact associated with the products that they sell, but also as an investor, how can we help them be as ambitious in terms of their own operations as well? Yeah, great. Thank you for that. Well, look, I need to let you go, but before I do... I'd like to get a feel for something really ambitious that you're hoping, your moonshot for the future of sustainable investment. We talked about some of the more shorter term data points and, and the processes in terms of disclosure, but maybe looking a bit long term, where do you hope we end up? I have my moments of feeling somewhat depressed about where we are and the scale of the challenge in front of us, and then other moments of feeling quite optimistic. And um, one of those optimistic moments came a couple of weeks ago when we actually had our first in-person meeting with one of our companies for two years, a company called Smurfit Kappa, which is an Irish business that basically makes recycled cardboard packaging. We see as a preferable material for packaging to plastic and other, other materials. And the, the reason why it was an inspiring meeting is because the guy that we were meeting with was, had previously been the investor relations director at the company, you know, very focused on responding to investors and often quite sort of short-term issues around pricing of commodities. And he'd been on a course on sustainability and had moved into a position as the chief sustainability officer, a new position actually for the company. And here was a guy who, you know, three or four years ago, probably couldn't really even spell sustainability. And at that meeting, he was just inspiring about the potential of that company to move vigorously in the direction of sustainability, but not just in terms of the product they supply, but in terms of their own operations, their ability to support biodiversity, their commitment to net zero carbon. And it was just amazing. I was thinking, you know, if we have businesses around the world of this caliber, with this focus and this commitment, you know, then there is definitely hope. We can, we can really do amazing things. My vision is that we have 
you know, every large business, every business has has that ambition and ability to pursue this this objective of sustainability, and then that really would be something. I really like that. That's great. It's not, you know, it's not a new impact framework. It's not about a data platform. It's simply about the people in the companies having that passion and drive. That's really great. All right, let's leave it there, Seb. Thank you so much for that. Lots of great insights there. Let's stay in touch. Thanks a lot, John. Thank you, Seb. Take care. The information in this podcast is not intended as financial advice. If there has been mention of financial products, it should not be taken as a recommendation and it shouldn't be relied upon. It does not take into account the investment objectives, financial situation or the particular needs of any potential investor. You should consider obtaining independent advice before making any financial decisions. If you're in Australia, you can visit moneysmart.gov.au for more details.